Episode 8, Vikings of the Pandemic, Orkney Island, November 1942. The torpedo came straight toward the port side of the U.S. Navy ship Hamilton. The destroyer was bringing up the rear of a small convoy made up of five cargo ships. This contingent had broken off from the main U.S. convoy that was sailing through the North Atlantic towards Gdansk. It delivered critical airplane parts and machinery to Dover and proceeded up the English Channel towards the Orkney Islands and the North Sea. The U-boat was sitting in a cove off Stronsay. The U-boat captain was probably surprised to see the U.S. ships sailing between the coasts of Scotland and Norway. He took aim and the U.S. Hamilton was hit by two torpedoes just before dawn. The first torpedo hit the Hamilton amidships, and a second torpedo hit the ship's stern. Emergency lights flooded the deck while warning sirens blared, and sailors put on life jackets and prepared the lifeboats. The ship was sinking by the stern, its bow up in the air. Lieutenant Robert Work, the ship's chief medical officer, was below deck in the infirmary, helping us several wounded Russian sailors to evacuate. They were being brought back to Gdansk after having been rescued by the U.S. in the Pacific Theater. Water was pouring into the infirmary. Explosions and fire from the engine room below lit up the flooded passageway. Two nurses helped Dr. Work get the injured Russians on deck. Robert ran down towards the engine room where men were screaming for help. After he and the head engineer got the heavy door open against the rising water, they ran down a flight of steps, shouting directions. Burning embers glanced off his arms, hissing with steam as they hit the churning water. One just barely missed his head. He pulled three men, knocked unconscious by the blast, toward the stairway. Two sailors helped him bring them up on the deck. Lifeboats bobbed around the Hamilton, and fishing boats from Kirkwall, the town lit up like a Christmas tree, were streaming towards the wounded destroyer. As they waited their turn to disembark, every sailor on deck knew they would only survive 10 or 15 minutes in the frigid water. A British Coast Guard boat pulled up alongside Dr. Work and his patients, and they climbed or were carried aboard just before a final explosion. The U.S. Hamilton disappeared from view. Robert awoke in a sunny ward, not knowing where he was. He wanted to feel a sore spot on his head, but he could not raise his arm because a plaster cast was restraining it, and a sling was keeping his other shoulder firmly in place. Bandages covered both arms, and he could feel the dull pain of second-degree burns. He moved his head carefully from side to side. A civilian nurse came up to him and put her cool hand on his forehead. She held a thermometer in her other hand, raising her eyebrows, asking permission. He nodded, and the thermometer went into his mouth. What he really wanted was a drink of water. You are in Balfour Hospital in Kirkwall, Orkney, Dr. Work, the young nurse told him. You were rescued from your torpedoed ship by the British Coast Guard and brought into Kirkwall Harbor. You have second-degree burns on both of your arms, your right shoulder was dislocated, and your left elbow bone broken. You also have a slight head injury. She smiled at him. Some of the men here in this ward are from your ship. Other survivors were taken to the Navy base at Scaffa Flow.
Robert nodded. The nurse lifted her, his head so that he could drink some water. He looked around to see if he recognized any of the other patients. His voice croaked as he spoke. Were there many casualties? he asked. His throat felt raw. He sank back on the pillow. Try not to speak, Dr. Work, the nurse said. Your lungs took in a lot of smoke and fumes from the ship fires. You need to rest your voice as well as your body. She began puffing up his pillows and smoothing the sheet and blanket covering him. She looked at him in a kindly way. They told us that you helped save ten men from going down with the ship. Your commander is very proud of you. She turned away to tend to the neighboring patient, whose entire face was bandaged except for his eyes. Balfour Hospital sat atop an incline, looking down on one of the main streets of the port of Kirkwall. A week later, Robert was slowly walking back and forth on the pavilion outside the hospital's entrance. The November sun was shining weakly. The pain from his burn was subsiding, and the skin on his forearm was slowly healing. His cast would be removed in three weeks. He received a visit from the second-in-command, who confirmed that twenty men had been lost on the Hamilton. The commander and other officers would be flying back to the U.S. in a few days, but the remaining crew, including the injured, would have to wait until the convoy returned from Gdansk. Severe winter weather was hampering the North Atlantic shipping lanes, and so the evacuation might not be for a few weeks. Is there anyone you know in Orkney, Lieutenant Work? The commander asked with a smile. Have you not always wanted to explore the Orkney Islands? The British Naval Headquarters at Scapa Flow is very impressive. You are to report to the American command post there after the hospital discharged you. The barracks are not too bad, and you will be able to send communication to your family. We have informed them that you are safe. Thanks to your fast action and bravery, ten of your fellow crewmen are alive. He saluted smartly, then walked away quickly through the ward's swinging doors. He was on the Orkney Islands. He turned this over in his mind as he looked down the hill into the town. He could see the docks in the deep bay that protected Kirkwall from the North Sea. Some fishing boats were still in the water. Others were hauled up on land. Fishermen and dock workers were busy repairing their boats and their nets. Beyond the harbor, he could see a large island, and beyond that, the sea. Is it Shepensay Island, he asked himself, the home of his ancestors? He knew that the family was originally from Orkney Island. A couple of days later, he was discharged from the hospital with instructions to return to Balfour Hospital every two days to the burn unit and in two weeks for removal of the cast. Robert was excused from the saluting when he reported to the American command post at Scapa Flow. An inside, wa inside walk him to a long barracks pointing out to him the huge battleships that were anchored in the bay. Entrance to Scapa Flow was guarded by embankments built between the smaller islands that protected the entrance to the sweeping bay. Undersea nets strung across the bay's outlets prevented entry of U-boats. When they got to the barracks, Robert was shown a small private room that he would be using until the U.S. convoy arrived. He collected linen, some clothing, and personal supplies at the PX and made a reservation to make an overseas call the next morning to his home in Chicago. 
Robert lost all his personal belongings and medical kit when the U.S. Hamilton went down. Luckily, he had little of value on board except photographs of his wife Emily, a biology teacher in Chicago, and his two sons, Thomas, starting at Princeton in the fall, and Matthew, a 10th grader at Evanston High School. This was not Robert's first war. In 1918, when the U.S. entered World War I, he was a medical student at the University of Chicago. The war he fought back then was the influenza pandemic of 1918 that swept across America. Uh, he was enlisted, as were all medical personnel, to treat both military and civilian patients in the Chicago area hospitals. Both populations were hard hit. The naval seamen brought the disease into port and from there it spread out into the community. Both he and Emily, who he met at the University of Chicago when she was getting her graduate degree in biology, thought that they would never see another war in their lifetime. Robert was hopeful that Thomas, who was only 18, would receive a dispensation from active duty until he graduated from Princeton. Robert himself, over objections from his extended family, enlisted in the Navy despite being almost 50 years old. There was a shortage of experienced trauma surgeons in the Navy, and the medical command thought that he was best placed on the convoy with his constant threat of bombardment and torpedoes. After news of the sinking of the U.S. Hamilton was reported, Robert's wife Emily received a telegram from the Navy that her husband was safe on Orkney Island. All three members of the family drove to Chicago's Navy Pier to take the call from Robert. Thomas was home early for the Thanksgiving holiday, unable to concentrate on his studies until he heard that his father was okay. Robert provided very few details of the Hamilton's sinking, the shock of it still on his mind. The voices of his wife and his sons brought him back down to earth, and it warmed his heart when he heard them vying for the telephone receiver in order to tell them their news. The call, which was scheduled for 15 minutes, ended too quickly. Before you go, Emily said in a rushed voice, I have a message to give you from your Aunt Rachel. She has a family history that she recently received from the estate of her late cousin, Josephine Hamilton, and is desperate to give it to you. I am going to pick it up from her tomorrow. She was thrilled to hear that you were in the Orkney Islands, and she instructs you to visit Chapinsay Island. I will tell you more on our next call. Goodbye, my darling. We are so relieved that you are safe. They would speak again in two days' time. Aunt Rachel was his maiden aunt, aunt, his father, Josiah's younger sister. She must be in her mid-90s by now, Robert thought. She lived in the WCTU home near Hyde Park and the University of Chicago, and he saw her often when he was in medical school. She received nurses training in her 20s from the Boston Training School the first nursing school in the United States. She then volunteered as a missionary with the American Presbyterian Mission in Egypt. She retired from her mission work in 1920 and along with her cousin Josephine, devoted much of her time to preserving the family history. Two days later, Robert and the family spoke again by transatlantic telephone. Thomas was going back to Princeton and Matthew and Emily were returning to school and teaching.
What will you do with your free time, Robert? Emily asked. I will volunteer my services at the infirmary here once my cast is off, he said, but I think I need more than that. There must be a library in Kirkwall. I'm going to explore the town. Anne Rachel suggests once again that you visit Chapinsay Island, the work's ancestral home. She also told me that there is the Orkney Genealogical Society that could provide you with information about the works before they left Orkney. Many Orcadians left the islands for faraway lands and are curious about their roots, so this society is used to getting requests about ancestors. The next morning, nursing the cast on his left arm, Robert hitched a ride into Kirkwall. His right shoulder was returning to normal function. He walked down the crooked streets of the town and along the waterfront. St. Magnus Cathedral loomed over the town, and he went inside. He was sitting in the front pew when a friendly priest passed by and sat down next to him, asking him how he was feeling. By the way, Robert carried himself in his American uniform. The priest could tell that Robert had been injured. Robert explained that he was recovering and would be at the base in Scapa Flow for a few weeks until he can return to the United States. He told the priest that his family roots were in Orkney. When he told the priest his name, his last name, Work, the priest pondered this information for a moment, then said, well, there are many plenty of works here in Orkney. I think some were associated with this cathedral, which was built in the 1150s. I could look that up for you if you give me some time. We have an archive here in the cathedral. I also recommend that you visit the historical and the genealogical societies, as well as our library. I am sure our Orkney history can keep you occupied during your stay. Robert thanked him, saying that he would return the following week to see what the priest had found. He left the grand building, thinking, boy, what have I gotten myself into? It is my Aunt Rachel who should be here, not me. She would really dig into this. He decided to visit the stores and the little coffee shops and stroll along the harbor, rather than exercise his brain in the study of family history. But the next day he was back in Kirkwall, visiting the Genealogical Society, where he met the head genealogist, Edward Gunn. Edward Gunn was able to provide Robert with an overview of the work plan that he found most interesting. The time of the Protestant Reformation was a period of great transition for Orkney, and it divided some families, including the works, Edward said. The work clan leader traditionally was known as the fortress keeper, a position the head of the family held since Viking times. Their homestead was on the southern tip of Chapinsay Island, where the Balfour estate is now located. Some of the work family members were keen church reformers and became covenanters, opposing Charles Stuart or Charles I when he sought sanctuary in Scotland during the English from the English par- Parliament during their civil war. 
Charles had promised the Scottish reformers that their church would be free of Episcopal and state interference. This was known as the Covenant. But Charles went back on his word, and the Scots turned Charles over to the English Parliament, and he was beheaded. Oliver Cromwell took over ruling Great Britain then, establishing his republic. Some works supported Cromwell, even though he brought the military to Orkney to su subdue avid Scottish royalists. Edward continued, What many Protestant reformers did not count on was the restoration of the Stuart line to the throne of Great Britain in 1660. When Charles II was restored to the throne, many members of the work clan moved to Northern Ireland, along with other covenanters. The royalists in Orkney made life very difficult for them, and even took their land away, punishing them for supporting Cromwell's Republic. In Northern Ireland, they supported the Protestant William of Orange during the Glorious Revolution of 1688, rather than the Stuart King, James II, and the Jacobites. Many emigrated to America, a lot of them settling in Pennsylvania, and they became patriots in the American Revolution. Robert listened in fascination. But that is where my ancestors are from, Pennsylvania, he said. I myself live in Chicago, but I know many works living in the Pittsburgh area. My aunt has a work family history that I am not seeing yet, but I am hoping the events that you have just described are set down there. The works are all very stout Presbyterians to the core. That sounds true to the form to form for the families who emigrated to America. Religious independence and freedom was a big reason for them emigrating in order to get away from the influence of the state-run Episcopal Church. However, many works remained in Orkney, and they became believers in the Church of Scotland, while others moved south to England or worked for a British company, such as the Hudson Bay Company, and they became Anglicans. Some were royalists and viewed the Covenanters as rebels. Edward paused and got up to make a pot of tea. They were sitting in his small office, and Robert saw shelves filled with documents, doors leading to back rooms containing countless historical and genealogical records were there. While he was pouring out the tea, Edward continued his story. Many other works emigrated to Canada. In the early 1700s, the Hudson Bay Company began recruiting seamen and laborers for the growing fur trade in British North America. The company required tough seamen who were used to harsh winter conditions. At that time, most Arcadians were sailors, traders, fishermen, and farmers, all wrapped into one. We have some of the best farmland here in Scotland, but there is only so much land to go around, and so many younger sons took the option of working for the Hudson Bay Company. Not just working men, but physicians, ministers, explorers, traders, and managers took on employment. The Port of Stromness was a major port for the company, as their ships could easily enter the North Atlantic, sailing directly to North America's furthest reaches, the Hudson Bay.
They must have been incredibly tough men, these Orkney men, remarked Robert. I met a John Work during the summer and was working as an intern on the northern peninsula of Newfoundland. This was my first awareness of works in Canada. John told me that his ancestors came to Manitoba to the Red River, a settlement founded by the Hudson Bay Company in the early 1800s. Many Orkney families tried their handy hand at the Red River settlement, Edward said, not just single men, but also whole families. Those settlers did the same thing as they did here. They farmed, and during the fur trading season, they became boatmen, hunters, and trappers. We in Orkney are quite proud of these northern pioneers. It is said that the boats that the company men used to navigate the inland rivers of northern Canada were similar to the yole, a traditional boat of the Orkney Islands. Robert walked away from his talk with Edward Gunn with a lot to think about. Edward said he would look through the Society's archival material and see what he could find specific to the works. Robert told him the priest at St. Magnus had made a similar offer, and he would return the next week. Robert was impressed by the generosity of the Orkney Island people and the pride they took in their heritage. His next trip would be to take the ferry out to Chaffinsay and find a work to talk to. The priest at St. Magnus Cathedral found a record of three works working in the bishopric of Orkney. One was a nun, Margaret Work, who worked in the infirmary in the late 1300s and early 1400s. The priest produced a very old book. The binding was coming apart. He told him that the book was written in Old Norse by nun Margaret and contained pictures and descriptions of medicinal plants. The priest was not sure what the plants were or where they were collected as the writing was very difficult to read. In addition to the nun Margaret, two members of the work clan were head clerics, one in the early 1200s, cleric Paul, and the other at the, at the same time as Margaret, cleric William. There was no information written about their work in the bishopric, but the priest suggested that other archives of the Church of Scotland might contain fuller accounts of their tenure. Edward Gunn at the Genealogical Society showed him a booklet written in the late 1800s entitled The Work Clan and the Hudson Bay Company. And this was a summary of the men and some women who were employed by the company in British North America. Edward said, that the Hudson Bay Company's main store and archive in Winnipeg, Manitoba, might also have a copy of this booklet. Robert returned to Chicago on a Navy cruiser at the end of February, 1943, crossing a turbulent sea. His ship was in a large convoy and the U-boats did not get close enough to strike. The early warning relay system set up in Iceland and Greenland kept the convoy's commander well informed about their whereabouts. Robert was not redeployed, but worked in the surgical and rehabilitation department of the large military hospital in Chicago until the end of the war. This was good news for the family. 
One piece of bad news was that he would not be able to tell his Aunt Rachel about his visit to Orkney, as she had peacefully passed away at the end of January 1943. The service for Aunt Rachel was quite extraordinary. Robert, Emily, and Robert were relaxing the week after he got home. The table beside where Emily was sitting was stacked with several books and boxes. Many work family members traveled to the Presbyterian Church in Hyde Park that Rachel attended and shared the remembrance of her. What a life she led, being a member of one of the first graduating classes of professional nurses. Several family members came from Pittsburgh, where she spent her younger years. Rachel was alert to the very end, Robert, and she certainly had not forgotten that you were in the home of her ancestors. Emily smiled and pointed to the stack of mementos sitting next to her. She left all of these for you. Robert picked up an album-sized book. Work Family History, 1660 to 1900, and he opened it. It was comprised of neatly typed pages, as well as photographs and letters written by family members over the generations. Where did Aunt Rachel get this family history? Who wrote it? Robert asked. That is a pretty long story. Emily pulled out a notebook. Rachel explained it to me in great detail. Rachel's cousin, Josephine Hamilton, who was born in Pennsylvania in another branch of the work family, willed this history to Rachel. Josephine passed away in 1940. Rachel and Josephine attended nursing school together. Josephine married a physician, Dr. Calvin Hamilton, also from Pennsylvania, and they moved to Berkeley, California in the 1880s, about the same time your father Josiah Work moved from Pennsylvania to Colorado. Putting together this history was Josephine's life work. She gave Rachel other mementos that are in this box. The Hamiltons did not have any children, and Josephine was anxious that a family member who was in the medical profession be given all of this material. But here's the most important wish of both Josephine and Rachel. Robert Emily continued reading her notes. They had a strong, strong conviction that some members of the work family were blessed with the ability to heal and that this gift was passed on from one generation to the next, along with a very important family locket that is in this box. It is a very old locket. The family history describes family members who carried on this healing tradition. Emily picked up the white box that was labeled in Rachel's handwriting, from Rachel work to Robert work, 1942. They both believed that you, Robert, were the person to carry this tradition forward. Robert was thunderstruck. Rachel had never mentioned these family traditions or the locket to him. He had never met her cousin Josephine, although he had heard of her. These two incredible women had given him quite a responsibility. 
Well, I'm not sure what to say, Emily. I mean, the work family is scattered from one end of this country to the other. If there was a unifying tradition that the family held, it certainly has been diluted by the family's mobility. I love being with my father's sister, Aunt Rachel. I regret that I did not keep in better contact with the rest of the family, but I don't know how I can carry out the role Rachel and Josephine have set for me. Emily laughed softly and gave her husband a big hug. Bless you, Robert. I can see why these two chose you. They knew you would have a care. Many would not. I would not worry about doing anything, Robert, just keeping this material together, then passing it on when you believe the time is right. Robert, you have always kept a journal from the time you were an intern. Maybe that is one way of adding to the family history. Write about your time in Orkney. Robert looked relieved. He shared with Emily what he had discovered in Orkney about the works, the priest at St. Magnus Cathedral and Edward Gunn of the Genealogical Society showed him documents that mentioned work family members, and he took detailed notes. Robert was curious to see if the family history included any of this information. If not, he would add his notes to the family album.